Could you, could you tell how loud everybody was singing? That was awesome. I love to hear the singing on Tuesday night. You know, you're used to hearing it on Sunday morning, but there's something about hearing the singing on Tuesday night. I love it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels, it's, uh, it takes place in a, a, a really bizarre setting where Jesus intentionally took his disciples to. Uh, over the years, if the Lord wills and we're together over the years, which I hope he does, uh, you'll hear me come back to this story multiple times. It's just a significant story uh, for me, and it's been a significant story for a lot of people. It's the story where Peter confesses Jesus as Lord that takes place in Caesarea Philippi, and I'll get into all that in a minute, but Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, uh, I want to just give you a little bit of, have you ever been to a wedding from another denomination or another setting? So I grew up Southern Baptist and I went to a Catholic wedding and people were standing before I was standing and they were sitting before I was sitting and I wasn't sure what was happening and I wish there was like a handbook, like you should, like, or somebody on the stage with like a green and a red, they were like flipping. Um, and so, but that didn't happen. And when you come here, we have our own little niche traditions, and one of the things we do, you'll hear some people say it, uh, like, we'll read the scripture, and I'll say the word of the Lord, and people will say, thanks be to God, and you'll be like, thanks be to God, or you'll mumble it, and it'll be, you'll, you'll have missed it. Uh, and so, that's, that's not a super old tradition in orthodoxy, it's just, it just is, um, it's just something we do. So I'm going to blend two traditions. The one that I grew up under the last 13 years or so, we would stand. And the reason we stand when you read God's word, it's a Jewish tradition. When God speaks, people stand. When humans speak, people sit. And, uh, and Jesus took that humble posture when he went to teach the Sermon on the Mount. It says, his disciples came to him and sat down and he began to teach them saying. And so Jesus, before he took his obvious position as the risen Lord, he too honored that, that idea. So let's, uh, let's stand and read these verses, and then we will also say, thanks be to God when we're done, and then we'll sit, and we'll like blend them all together. It'll be the best of both worlds. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. It's a, a, a neat moment in time when we get to see this, this asking of Jesus when he says, what do people think about me? Do you remember doing that when you were like, it usually starts at about the time you start noticing the other gender. Like, what does he think about me? What does she think about me? Uh, and then, like, 
If you ever, have you ever had like the like the the spend the night party when you're like a little kid and you're like, what do you think about me? <laughs> like, well, what do you think about me? Maybe you didn't have that. Maybe I had weird ones. Whatever, it's fine. Let's pray. It's <laughs> enough of those confessions. Y'all get like the 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 deep dark side of all my things. Um, I was talking with Elizabeth, who's taking some photos tonight. And uh, we were talking about a reference I made to Netflix, and she was like, yeah, we watched that. And I was like, I got to be careful what we recommend here. Um, so this, this, this idea, though, is I think it goes back to identity, this idea of asking the question, like, what do people think about me? And what do, what do people think about, like, what do you think about me? There's like two, there's two stretches here. Like, what do those people think about me? And like, what do you think about me? And we all have that. Heather, one time, I told her I loved her, and she was like, what do you love about me? And I was like, oh, well, all right, here we go. I was like, I thought this was like short and sweet. That was good. That was good. She's like, it made me think, like, what do I think about Heather? And she wanted to hear, what do, what do I think of her? Who do, who do I think she is? And she didn't want some flower answer. She wanted to know, like, at the core who do I think she is and what do I love about who she is at the core? I think this idea can be boiled down into the nouns. And uh, I, have, I have three categories of nouns. I know there's four ideas, but ideas we're going to lump into things. Um, and so people, places, or things. This is where I, I think probably you get the most temptation to gain your identity from one of these nouns. So, for instance, if it's, if it's people, you know, how do you want to be seen? How do you want to be known? Um, we took a trip. If you were here Sunday, Jason mentioned it. We took a, a, about six staff guys. We went out to, to Las Vegas to visit a church. Like, and, and we did. We visited a church in Las Vegas. It's called Hope Church. It exists. You can Google it. Um, and that church came out of a, a local church around here. First Baptist Woodstock planted that church in like 2001, 2002. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a great success in, um, in, in a largely godless city. And so when people come to Christ there, they bring like a bottle of whiskey and they're like, praise God. Thank you, brother. And uh, you're like, cool. And you add it to the collection. Um, people come to Christ here. That doesn't always happen. But they, uh, it's just a different world out there. But uh, I wanted to be known for a long time as an adventurer. Like whether it was like going to climb a mountain or going to do something um, outside. And Instagram was like, uh, you know, it was like breaking loose about that time. And I was like, I could post only pictures of me doing awesome things. And so about like every other year I would post a picture because that's about how long it took. But I, for a while, I think it's, it was easy for me to get my, my identity wrapped up in people and what people thought of me and what they perceived me as. Um, some other examples would be, you want to be known as beautiful, you want to be known as smart, uh, sexy, desirable, powerful, married, um, single and owning it, dating and proud of it, not dating and even more proud, um, also known as recently, you were clearly the breaker-upper in that, in that, in that story. Um, successful. Sometimes it's like who I just hung out with. Like you're not all at, at seeing Bieber right now. I, and I, I appreciate that about you. Um, although I like Justin. I would have totally gone and seen Justin. I like, I would have. And Heather would have gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's shaking her head. Yeah. Um, but like people, that's one way we get our identity. Another one is, is places. 
where I work, where I live, where I'm going to live, where I don't live anymore. Like this idea of places is actually a really big one. You start thinking about it and it seems a little bit abstract, but places are a big deal. Um, I know a guy who who joined the Piedmont Driving Club, which cost tons and tons of money to join the Piedmont Driving Club. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's a big deal to join something like that and to say, I'm a member of this thing, this place. Uh, you know, what, what gym you belong to, how many amenities it has. There's something about places, especially in Atlanta, because we like to work and we like to make our money and then we like to show people that we've made some money. And so places is a big deal and that bleeds into things. Things, we can really get our, our identity in that. I know for a long time, I wanted a Jeep Cherokee, and I thought if I had a Jeep Cherokee, I would have arrived. Like, it seems like I talk about cars from the stage a good bit, but only twice, and it, I'm not into the prosperity gospel. But I never got that Jeep Cherokee, and I told my dad one day, I was like, Dad, my dream car is a Jeep Cherokee. And he was like, well, that's good. Like, maybe don't limit yourself to like the Jeep chair, because in my mind, I had like the base model, like the lowest of the low. But what you need to know is that I had the college car at that point in time, the one that didn't quite have all the paint it originally came with. Um, it had like the map of Asia on the hood. Um, we affectionately called it Old Brown, and because uh, and it was old and brown. But it didn't start off brown. And so like the, it had like the headliner that like brushed the top of your head that I held up with toothpicks. It was my college car. I met Heather and it showed a lot of her character. We dated in her car. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we didn't. About that time, I got a different car. Yeah, I sold that one. I sold that car for $1,000. This is a total site. It's not in my notes. I sold that car for $1,000 and I was like, well, if I, if I sell it for 1000 then I got to tithe 100 so I'll give, I'll give God 100 And the lady I sold it to, like, really needed a car, and it was kind of a sad situation. And so she gave me $100 and said, I'll pay you $100 every month. And I was like, now I'm a banker. I have arrived. And I'm like, no interest banker. I'm like a nice banker. And so she gave me $100, and I was like, I'm going to pay it forward, God. And I put that $100 in the plate, and she never paid me another dime. And so I was like, you got me good. It's really hard to go back to a church and ask for your 90 back. And so, <laughs> so I didn't. Um, but anyway, like, so here's a quick question. And this is like interaction with each other. No, no need for dirty details here, but just real quick with the people right around you, which one of the three is the most tempting for you to find your identity in? Ready? All right, let's do this. This is just for fun. This, this won't play well for anyone who missed and they're trying to listen to the podcast. We'll just have to cut all this out. This, this, won't, this won't help any of them. But for all of us, be, be brave here, okay? And the people beside you know if you're lying or not. All the people people stand. I want to see who you are. All right, people. Okay, you can have a seat. That's going to be our majority, I think. What about the places people? The places people. All right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, you can have a seat. Drum roll, please. The things, people. Let's see. All right. All right. Next week, we're talking about people pleasing. 
Okay, that's good. Look, here's two more questions for you as we, as we, as we roll into the night. So Jesus asked the two questions, and I want you to ask the two questions. Who do other people, if they were ascribing your identity, who would they say that you are? Like at your core, if you're taking notes, this is a great little thing to write down. You don't have to share this with the people around you, but who would other people say that you are? And then the follow-up question is, but who would you say that you are? And do they match? Just before we get into this story, I want to just give you three quick little bullets on what does God say about some of these contemporary areas of identity? The people, the places, the thing. For people, I think that's so interesting because we're in a time when um, gender is, is a way to identify yourself. Um, we're in a time, like hypersexual time. Um, we thought the 60s and 70s, you know, and if you look at American history, people thought the 60s and 70s would have been like the time that was the most hypersexual, but we are by far, we've passed them. Like, they're like, they're like riding wagons around. They're antiquated. We are in a whole new world of identity being associated with gender, among other things. And you know what? In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, he says, there's neither Greek nor, 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 nor Jew nor slave nor free, uh, nor male nor female. So when God thinks of our identity, he thinks past all of those things that people are so quick to say, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. God cuts way deeper than where we like to park it. He's got something much bigger in mind. As far as uh, places, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 26, 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, 26 through 31. I won't read all this. Some of it's going to be up on the screen. But he says, look, not many of you were from noble birth. Paul goes on and says, look, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the, the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He the scriptures say, look, it's not where you came from. It's not where you've been. It's not where you're going to go in this life that defines you. There's something much deeper that God has to define our identity. And in the way of things, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, he says, look, and again, I'm going to paraphrase this. He says, look, you can collect all the things you want, and I promise you that rust and moth are going to destroy them. You know the old adage, you can't take it with you. Nobody's ever seen a hearse or, or, or uh, a U-Haul following a hearse. Um, like, it's things have a very limited value in the eternal scheme of things. And so God has, God has a much deeper purpose for us than what we collect than where we come from or where we're going and who it is that we have wrapped ourselves with. God's purpose for our identity is much, much deeper. So let's take a look at this story. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so let me pause there. Jesus comes to Caesarea Philippi 
And Caesarea Philippi is the Las Vegas of the day, but more so. It's more like the Bourbon Street in New Orleans during Mardi Gras on Fat Tuesday. Caesarea Philippi is a wild place. It's not a place a rabbi takes his disciples. It's not a great field trip spot. And I'll get into a little bit more of that in just a minute. But he takes his disciples to that type of area and he asks them in that area. He says, who do people say that I am? And I asked you that question a minute ago. Who do people say that you are? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Well, he's clearly not John the Baptist, though he has some John the Baptist-like qualities. He goes on, I mean, John the Baptist baptized by immersion. Jesus was baptizing by immersion. John the Baptist devoted himself to the scriptures. Jesus had devoted himself to the scriptures. John the Baptist wasn't afraid to confront injustice, and Jesus wasn't afraid to confront injustice. So he had some characteristics, but that really wasn't who Jesus is. They go on, and they're like, well, what about Elijah? Now, that's a high praise. Elijah was the most fiery of all the prophets. And a few months ago, we did a little mini-series on Elijah, and we looked at 1 Kings uh, 17, 18, and 19, and that famous story of Elijah on on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. I mean, Elijah was not afraid to go toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of a false god who all had knives, because it says in the story that they cut themselves, and taunt them by saying things like, maybe shout louder, your God is perhaps in the bathroom. Like, he's not afraid to, he's, he's a bold, bold man. And so you got Jesus who is a bold, bold man. That's the praise that they're saying. They're like, Jesus, you are like not subtle to go places with. You are not afraid to be a voice for the Lord, to stand up for the Lord. But also, they said, well, some say you're like Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah weeps over the sins of the people. He weeps over the unrepentant hearts. He weeps over the people that have clearly seen God move and yet continue to go further away from him. And so they're like, well, Jesus, you're like a little bit of everything. You're like bizarre, a little bit like John the Baptist. You're bold like Elijah. You weep over the people like Jeremiah. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't bat an eye at any of these. Then he looks and he says, but who do you say I am? Who do you think I am at the core? And it's a beautiful moment. Simon Peter, who is always the most vocal, he's the oldest of the disciples. It's one, his job to speak up first, but two, it's in his nature to speak up first. Simon Peter usually speaks up and gets it wrong, but at this point he speaks up and gets it right. And not only does he get it right, he gets it perfectly right. And Simon Peter in verse 16 of Matthew 16 says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says something very interesting to him in verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon The word bar means son, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In that one little summary statement, when Peter says, at your core, your identity, Jesus, is that you are the Messiah. You're the one who's come to save the world. He sums up an infinite 
amount of words we could use to express the goodness, the righteousness, the immutability, and the list goes on and on and on of who this man is. And he sums it up by saying, you're God's redemptive work. Come down from heaven to save us. And Jesus, because he's the master of succinct things that we have spent millennia trying to unpack, says, blessed are you, Simon. God told you that. No man. Simon has a salvation moment. We're reading a salvation moment here. We're reading Simon's conversion story right here. He has this incredible salvation moment. And isn't it amazing that Jesus isn't like, well, that was true yesterday, like, but today I'm feeling a little less Messiah-like. Our, our core kind of flip-flops so often. And isn't it good that the core of God is immutable? It is unchanging. It is bedrock. He was Messiah. He is Messiah. He will always be Messiah. Peter nails it by describing his unchanging core identity of who this man is. And as a result, what we're going to see as the story unfolds in a couple of more verses, Peter then gets his identity. In this grace-filled confession of who Jesus' identity is, Peter receives his identity in that moment. And what happens? He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, verse 17, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's about three things that happen in this true grace-filled confession of Jesus as Messiah. One, there's a realization in there that Peter is fallen. When you, have, when you begin to receive your identity, not from people, places, or things, but from God himself, the way you receive that is you have to have a true grace-filled confession of who the Lord is. And in that grace-filled confession, there's a couple of things that happen. One, you realize that you are fallen. Are you familiar with the, the, the four-part narrative that you can find in Scripture? There's creation, there's the fall, there's the redemption, and then there's the consummation. I'll probably be coming back to that off and on again as we go through the book of Revelation, but there's this fourfold movement in Scripture. Creation, there's the fall, there's redemption, and then there's consummation. And so Jesus is the redemption piece of it, and he's the consummation. The consummation is he makes all things new. He doesn't just renovate. He doesn't just restore. He recreates. He makes things new. And so in this confession, there's this realization that Peter has fallen. And then there's an embracing of the fact that he can stand in front of the Messiah, the redemptive work of God, and not be struck dead. There's something interesting in this. Most Christians fail right here. 
I really believe in Matthew 7 when it says that uh, when Jesus said, many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do all these things in your name? And, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I think there will be a lot of Christians that understood that they were fallen, understood that Jesus was Messiah, but didn't believe that he really loved them. I think there will be lots of Christians that never embraced the grace of God. But they understood the truth of their condition. They just didn't believe that somebody could actually love them immediately, right now, for who they are and not who they should be. But in this moment, Peter has this embracing of grace. He understands he's fallen, he has this embracing of grace, and then he understands by Jesus' next words, that this is the start of his new identity. And hear me on this. Jesus' identity is as succinct as saying he is Messiah. And your identity, if you're in Christ, is as succinct as saying you are a child of God. And everything else flows out of that. It is that succinct. And you need to be real comfortable resting in that spot. That is who you are. Now you have gifts and you have talents and he's going to use you to do different things that he couldn't use me to do and vice versa. But at our core, we are all children of God. If we have realized we are fallen and if we have embraced his grace, we have had that grace-filled moment of salvation. And that means at my core, I am always a child of God, and that is who I am. And that is really easy to forget and really hard to believe at times. And sometimes you wonder, is it enough? And it's always more than enough. So Jesus, in this moment, he says, your new identity in this child of God, your, your, your action in this your identity is that you're going to be a child of God, and that's the core of this. And you see this all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament. And your action as a result of being a child of God, this is Peter-specific. Your action, Peter, as being my child is going to be the founder of the New Testament church. Now, Ella on the front row here, she cannot be the founder of the New Testament church, but God has an action for her as a child of God. He has a calling and an action, but that, is, that action is not her identity. My identity is not Thomas, uh, young adult pastor at Christ's covenant. That is not my identity, and it is a mistake if I wrap myself up in that because now I've just superseded child of God for pastor of young adults. And I will worship the wrong things and I will pursue the wrong things and I will be about the wrong things and I will find myself fluctuating. If, if you come one week and don't come the next, it's going to really hurt my feelings because my identity is in you showing up. And my identity is in how good you sing and how good the sermon goes and all these things. Now my action as being a child of God in this moment in time and space is to be God's servant as a pastor of young adults at Christ's covenant, that's my action, but it is not my identity. And you should pray for me that I don't get that mixed up because if I get that mixed up, we're all going sideways. And that's really important to differentiate our action that God calls us to from our identity. Because when I get to heaven, you know what? There's not gonna be a young adult ministry. 
And it's going to be real sad if I'm walking around going, uh, it's Tuesday. <laughs> where's, uh, where's the room? Jesus, you want to give a testimony? Like, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be awesome. And that's why these people, places, things that we wrap ourselves up in and we, we, we call them our identity, it's a sad waste of time for that to be my identity. My identity is to get to know the one who brought me here and saved me because I'm going to be with him a lot longer than I'm going to be with all of you, right? Like, I mean, we're all going to be together for eternity, but like I want to see him more than I want to see you. And I'm going to want to see you, but you know what I'm saying. Now, People have undertaken some really creative sermons on the gates of hell. And I think early on in my ministry, I undertook some really creative sermons on the gates of hell. But here's the, here's the problem. I, I made the gates of hell like, a, like, this, like this metaphor. And can I show you a picture? That's the gates of hell. This is Caesarea Philippi. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took his disciples to this place. There are multiple temples carved into, you can see, I don't, you can't see on the side TVs. Well, I mean, I can't see the side TVs. In the center here, this is the temple of Pan, who was worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. You can see another carving to the right of that. And if you kept going, there's other carvings even further to the right. You just can't see them from that vantage point in the photo. But those are all little temples to other gods. Jesus took his disciples to the god of Pan. Out of this little cave, there's a, a spring that flows out. It still flows out to this day. And this is in the very, very northern part of Israel. But this spring flows out, and people would, would take about a, a few times a year, they would take and give one of their babies to the priest who was the priest of Pan, and they would throw that baby against the rocks in the back of this cave. And if the waters ran red as they came out, that they would know Pan was appeased. You know the story, or you know the picture of Pan. He's half goat, half man. Pan was served in front of this cave by some of the most lewd acts that you could imagine. As lewd or more lewd than we have today. There was bestiality. There was sex between men and women and so on and so on, all out here, all in public, all out front. As decadent and perverted as you can imagine, it happened in front of this cave. Not to mention the child sacrifice that would happen during all of that. Jesus brought his disciples in front of this cave. And it's in front of this cave that Peter has a salvific moment, confesses Christ as Messiah. His identity is changed and his job is changed. He's no longer a fisherman. He's no longer a blue-collar, uneducated guy. He is now going to be the founder of the New Testament church. And it all happened in front of this cave. And as they're in front of this cave, and I don't know what time of year it was, I don't know what all was happening, but I imagine something not great was happening Jesus looked at the entrance of this cave, which is called the gates of hell. And everybody knew it in the Jewish times. This is the gates of hell. It's not a metaphor. It's a literal place. And Jesus said, Peter, on you, 
this rock, Peter's name means rock, and Jesus uses another word for rock, and he says, on this rock, Peter, you are going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Now, what an incredible picture that as a child of God, all the lurid things of this world won't be able to compare with this new identity that I've given you. And when people who have this old identity look at you and they're thinking, come on back to the party life, come on back to the way it used to be, come on back to this, you can do whatever you want here. They're going to be drawn to the light that you carry, which is your identity in me as you build this church. You see, we cheapen the cross and the gospel when if we are children of God, we latch on to people or places or things to call us, to call us, uh, to call our identity in them. We cheapen the gospel. We're supposed to stick out like a sore thumb as children of God where our hope is in him and our identity is in him and our heart is in him. Our hope is, is wrapped up in only things he can promise. Nothing this world can offer. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this now because I just, today on Apple News, it popped up, popped, it popped up, it popped up on my, watch your mouth, Thomas. It, it popped up, it popped up on my phone, the unspoken, uh, the, the, the unspoken, uh, <clears throat> I forget the exact name of the title, but it was, it was basically the unspoken anxiety of today's age. And it was this whole article on anxiety. And all it takes is like two seconds to look and you can see hundreds of articles on anxiety and fear that have corroded us as a society. And the pandemic certainly escalated all of those things. Do you know where we get the word panic from? We get the word panic, the English word panic from this God, Pan. That was amazing. <laughs> the, one of the beautiful things that the Lord offers us as we come to him, and yes, it can take counseling and it can take other Christian resources, but one of the things God offers us when our identity is stricken in him and founded in him is a freedom from this cave, a freedom from panic and anxiety. That alone in today's world is attractive and awe-inspiring and confusing to people. How can we exist in the same space and you be so different from me? So then, how do I live in this new identity as a child of God? I want to just give you some truths to write down. One Two are going to come out of the book of Romans. One's going to come out of the book of John and then one out of Galatians. One, you, are, you, you were captive and now you are free. And we see that narrative all through the Bible. When you become a child of God, you realize I have been set free. Romans 8, 2, where we have been set free indeed in Christ. The law uh, of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Jesus, from the law of sin and death, you've been set free. One, we also become, we go from an enemy of God to an heir 
We go from an enemy of God, an enemy of God to an heir in Romans 8, 16 through 17. For time's sake, I'm going to keep going. We go also go from being fatherless and an orphan to being in the family. Jesus said in John, we're told in John 1, 12 that, uh, that when we believe in God, we give, we are given the right to become children of God. So we become in the family. We go from captive to free, enemy to heir, fatherless to family. And I love this one. In this verse, I want to read to you. We go from being unknown to known. And who doesn't want to be known? Let me read it to you. Galatians 4, 9. It says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves do you want to become once more? I love that. How, but now that you have come to know God, and then he flips it and he says, actually, you've actually come to be known by God. One of the beautiful things of coming to Christ in salvation, whether it was last week or tonight or 10 years ago, is in that moment, you had no more secrets before him and he loved you as you are. There is not another person in the world that loves all the parts of you. Heather loves most of my, of, of my being, but there's some things she would probably change and vice versa because we're imperfect and we have a really great marriage. But nobody loves me like the Lord does, and nobody loves her like the Lord does. I'm a child of God, and it's amazing. I'm an heir with Jesus. I'm beloved. I'm redeemed. I'm paid for, forgiven. I'm a priest. Do you realize that? Like you're like a little priest walking around. In 1 Corinthians 12, you're like a little church walking around wherever you go. You're like this little church. That's amazing. All these truths that we find. And yet, at the same time, I want us to close the gap between these identity struggles that we have and who we're really supposed to be, a child of God. And so I want to give you three simple ways that I want us to all band together to start to close the gap and to help each other in Christ be that child of God. The first one is biblical community. I want to challenge you. And I met with like 20 or so people tonight who are ready to get in small groups. I want to challenge you to be a part of biblical community. Biblical community is not like, hey, we go to dinner a bunch. That's great. That's like a lot of people do that. Biblical community is I know your spiritual business and you know my spiritual business. And we love each other anyway, but we're challenging each other and we're pushing each other. And yet we still accept each other. Biblical community is complex and messy and exhausting. But the Lord, as he knows us, wants us to know each other. Because then we can call each other out. If JJ here sees me not, not finding my identity in Christ, but finding my identity in like, success or failure in ministry, he needs to call me out. And I've had friends do that. I had a friend one day when I was, I was like, man, we're not having as many people as we used to have in this college ministry. And he said, I need to never hear you talk about numbers again. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, you, that's, you're messing up right now. You need to stop. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And I think about that to this day. Biblical community is important and rhythms done rightly. If you find out that I'm not reading this book and like Wordle is taking over and like I'm just going to, I'm knocking out my Wordle, but I'm not knocking out like reading anything in this book, we got a problem. I need to be having my rhythms often, regularly. I need to have a rhythm of corporate worship. I have a rhythm of Tuesdays gathering with you. I have a, I'm trying to have more rhythms talking with Heather, the two of us, talking about what is the Lord teaching you, which, by the way, is a great question. What's the last thing God taught you? People would be like, um, what about you? And so, like, that's your out. Um, but, like, these rhythms of regularly engaging with the Lord and engaging with each other and reading the Bible and talking about the Bible, these are super important for you to remember who you are. And the third one, and again, I made this list up. There's probably 50 things we could put here, but the third one is this. If you really want to have your identity in Christ as a child of God, you're going to have to have some boundaries. There's some people you can't be around because they will mess you up. You'll start putting more stock in them and what they think or how they feel or what's going on with them than you care about what God thinks. There's some places you just don't need to go. And there's some things you just don't need to collect or have anymore. But if we do these things as a community, if we're biblical community together, if we're rightly having rhythms, and if we help each other with our boundaries, we're taking some really solid steps in learning to be a child of God and out of that, find the actions that God is calling me to fulfill. My hope is that if you've had that true grace-filled confession of Jesus, that you're going to believe that you are a beloved child of God who's forgiven, invaluable, useful, holy, wonderfully made, appreciated by God. And if you haven't had that, then maybe tonight, if the Lord's working, you would. I think it would be a good night to have our prayer team. They're always over here, but especially tonight, I think it would be a really good night if you've been struggling with an identity crisis and you know you're a child of God, but the people are really in your head or the places or the things are driving you nuts. It's so helpful to go to another believer and say, hey, will you, will you just pray for me? I really want my identity to be a child of God, but I'm, I've got it wrapped up in some other stuff and I need help. It's also a great night to pray for somebody else. We all know some folks that were walking with the Lord and have shipwrecked in their faith. And I can guarantee you it's because their identity got locked in something other than being a child of God. And they have drifted back towards those gates of hell where there is nothing good that awaits them. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this group. 
I thank you for the seriousness of so many people's faith, for the curiosity in so many people's faith. Lord, for the love that so many have for you, for the love that is developing for you. Lord, guard us and help our identity to really be completely locked in and that we are a child of God. We are no longer orphans. We are no longer left alone, but we are your child if we've had that grace-filled confession of Jesus as the Christ. And Lord, I just personally want to thank you that you love me and you love all of us right now as we are because we know we are not as we should be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.